what kind of programs does this school have? How are the test scores? How many kids do a classroom? Homes.com knows these are all things you ask when you're home shopping as a parent. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools, including photos, parent reviews, test scores, student-teacher ratio, school rankings, and more. The information is from multiple trusted sources and curated by Homes.com's dedicated in-house research team. It's also you can make the right decision for your family. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. Just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. On the Bechdel cast, the questions asked if movies have women in them. Are all their discussions just boyfriends and husbands, or do they have individualism? The patriarchy's effing vast. Start changing it with the Bechdel cast. Jamie. I'm so sorry that I Shut up. made you Shut do up. this podcast with me. Shut up. It's all Put my the camera fault. down. Shut no, up. I, have I to know. Keep recording the podcast. It is your fault. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> That's basically the movie, right? <laughs> Done. <laughs> More or less. Yep. 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 Oh, Heather. <laughs> Poor Heather. Hello, and welcome to the Bechtel cast. My name is Caitlin Durante. <laughs> Or is it? No, I'm <gasps> I truly, uh, I have so many thoughts about just the ethics of this movie are so wild. I feel like the wildest thing to me is being like, no actors, we're going to use your full government name mm-hmm. and then market it as if you have died. Died. Anyways, my name's Jamie Loftus for now. <laughs> And this is our podcast where we examine movies through an intersectional feminist lens, using the Bechtel test simply as a jumping off point to initiate a larger conversation. Hell yeah. There's a lot of different versions of the Bechtel test. It is a media metric created by queer cartoonist Alison Bechtel originally as a one-off bit in her comic collection Dykes to Watch Out For back in the 80s, but has since been adopted as a way of talking about gender as it's portrayed in big, cool movies. There's a lot of different versions of the test. The one we use is this. We require that there be two characters of a marginalized gender with names speaking to each other about something other than a man for two lines of dialogue or more. Wow, it's so true. I forgot to pay attention to it for this movie. I think that it does, though, right? Because Mary and Heather... Mary Brown. about the Blair yeah. Witch. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a super pass. All right, well, <laughs> let's end the episode. So Sorry, goodbye. our guest didn't get to speak. <laughs> 
JK, we, again, we talk about this from time to time that people think our podcast is just talking about whether or not a movie passes the Bechdel test. And it's my favorite way to find out that someone has been lying to me about listening to the podcast, which is very funny because it's like, I truly don't give a shit if people listen to the show or not. Like You can just admit that you don't. Yeah, but I like to imagine... (laughs) I'm like, well, I guess you wouldn't like the show if you really thought it was us teasing that great mystery apart for the better part of two hours. Um, (laughs) Anyways, you're listening to this. You know that's not the case. We are covering the Blair Witch Project, and we have Mm. an incredible, long-anticipated guest wearing, you cannot see, an incredible and appropriate shirt. (laughs) Scary stories to tell in the dark. Our guest is the host of the podcast American Hysteria. It's Chelsea Weber-Smith. Hello. I couldn't be more thrilled to be here and analyze mm. this, uh, one of my most favorite movies of all time. Oh. So thank you so much for having oh, me. Thank you for being here. <laughs> Truly. We're so pumped. This is. Do you spend the whole episode trying to figure out what is so American about the hysteria? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. I'm so glad you suggested us doing this movie because it feels... So Chelsea Weber Smith expanded universe coded. I have so many questions about how the Blair Witch mythology ties into stuff you've covered over the years. I'm just so pumped. Mm. I've like turned into some kind of weird de facto Blair Witch expert, or at least (laughs) I like to think that I've gone on a few podcasts talking about this uh, movie. And, you know, I think 11 year old me would be pretty thrilled about that. So shout out (laughs) to the past me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, tell us all about your relationship with the Blair Witch Project. (laughs) The Blair Witch Project. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I was 11 when it came out in 1999, and I was very much in the camp of thinking it was real. And I remember hearing about it. I have no idea how I heard about it, probably just being on the internet. And I was obsessed with the website, which I'm sure we'll get into, which Mm -hmm. was kind of part of the expanded universe of this movie, which is as important as the movie itself is the marketing behind it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my parents were going to see it because I come from a very horror-oriented background, and they were Mm -hmm. pumped to see it. And I think they probably knew it was fake at that point, but I'm not sure. But I was pissed because they were going on a date and not taking me. And so I ended up just watching the sci-fi documentary that they made as like a supplement. Yeah. Did you watch it, Jamie? I did not know that before today. I did watch it. This movie's like marketing campaign is like Barbie movie found dead in a ditch. This is the most 4D (laughs) game of chess ever played by a movie's marketing campaign. It's so wild. It's Mm -hmm. incredible. And yeah, so basically what that documentary did on the Sci-Fi Channel was give a bunch of context to this movie that kind of exists without context, which is why it's so amazing. So I got really into the lore in the background Mm -hmm. that's happening. And then finally, I got to see it. And I think by that time, I had figured out that it was not real because it was when it came to video and it kind of cat was out of the bag. And of course, you know, a lot of people knew it was fake because it's ridiculous to think that this would be in theaters, right? This footage. But, (laughs) and I remembered hearing about it and I was like, that's gotta be illegal. Like, there's no way they could show this, like, police evidence footage of these people who went missing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I just absolutely loved 
kind of digging into it because not only was it this documentary, but they had a website that that had all of the documents and all of these different interviews and information about these missing people. And yeah, it was just such a, a full experience. They were on message boards, like adding comments to people talking about it to try to like stir up mm. different reactions and to kind of control the narrative that way. Um, So I think just having that experience as an 11-year-old, I just started to make the Blair Witch stick figures. There's actually currently one hanging in our yard because I still make them every Halloween. That's Um, so cool. Yeah, but I started to make them and hang them in weird places to scare people. Like when I went camping, like hang them on the trees outside strangers' tents, like an absolute little little stinker, as you guys say. Uh, true, true blue. That's the colloquial term. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Actually, it's the scientific term. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that that kind of explains how it's been a part of my very DNA uh, yeah. since the beginning of my interest in this type of content, like, you know, hoaxes and hysteria around some of the elements included in this. It's a commentary, I think, on a lot of things. So we'll get into it. Yes, we will. So was this sort of like close to your patient zero for a lot of the work that you do now? I don't think that's wrong. Yeah, I think it probably makes a lot of sense because I so enjoyed being like hoaxed, which is, of course, not always true, but it feels Mm. like one of those hoaxes that didn't really cause any damage. Like it was just kind of a whole lot of fun. I'm sure there's, you know, I'm sure there's elements of it, but it didn't to me add to the satanic panic too much of the 90s coming out in 99 as it did. Mm -hmm. And that would have kind of made me have a little bit more of a sour relationship to it because I don't like demonic satanic horror movies very much uh, because I think it kind of continuously keeps this satanic fear going. Um, But, you know, it definitely still has those elements of even like the witch hysteria of the Mm -hmm. witch trials of the 1600s in America, which is Mm -hmm. foundational, uh, even though we've never done an episode on it, which is funny. But yeah, I think it is very much part of the fabric of what started my love of folklore and legends, uh, because it was such an interesting folklore, whereas a lot of folklore is pretty boring. But when you mix it with kind of an urban (laughs) legend situation, more modern, then you get my attention. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Caitlin, what's your history? I saw this movie in a drive-in movie theater in 1999. (gasps) Yeah. Awesome. I was 13 and I was so scared. I was like, this is the scariest movie I've ever seen. And I don't think I've changed my mind since then. Like I, to this day, think it might be the scariest movie I've ever seen. I know there are haters out there, but I think it's so scary. I think it's such an effective horror movie. And then I watched the sequel a bunch. Oh, Blair Witch Book of two, Shadows. Book of Shadows. Not to be confused with National Treasure 2 Book of Secrets, Book of, of course. Secrets. That's true. <laughs> yeah. In Blair Witch 2, do they kidnap the president? The president of the United States. Um, yeah. They do not, but a bunch of... Uh, bummer. Scary. I, for some reason, watched the sequel several times, or specifically book of shadows in the early 2000s because i thought it was just like i don't know just like a cool extension of the first one and i also to prepare for this episode watched blair witch 
which is the third installment of the franchise that came out in 2016, which I don't remember it even coming out in theaters. It's something I feel like I should have been aware of. It was not that long ago, but I was like, what is this movie? I don't remember that coming out at all. And it had a theatrical release and everything. It made like $45 million at the box office. Anyway, I watched it. I also thought it was very, very scary. It does rely on a few very tired, nasty horror Mm -hmm. movie tropes, such as the black guy is the first person to die. But it was very scary. Anytime people are camping in the woods and it's dark and they're just sort of like waving a camera around the woods and you can only see little bits and pieces, I'm like, I'm scared. The woods are scary. I will never go camping under any circumstances because probably of movies like this. Like no camping period. I refuse to go camping. Got it. My friends are always like, let's go (laughs) camping. And I'm like, but why? I like indoor plumbing. I like sleeping on a bed. I like having walls and a ceiling (laughs) and a floor. So no, thank you. But um, yeah, I... (laughs) Thank you. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) I did not realize how much I love this franchise until sort of like revisiting it for this episode. But I think it rocks. So that is my relationship (laughs) to the Blair Witch. Jamie, how about you? Uh, I wish I had as detailed a lore. I feel like I definitely do not remember this movie coming out Sorry, I'm so young. Um, But (laughs) I do, like, I wish, I don't know, like, reading about everything that surrounded this movie and, like, hearing about your experiences, like, seeing it for the first time. uh, If I had been, like, you know, nine or ten when this came out, I would have lost my fucking mind. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like, this is so... It's just, it was so fascinating to read about how this was made, even though it's like wildly unethical and probably would get them blacklisted today. But like, Mm -hmm. I was eating this shit up for the last two days. I have been in the Blair Witch (laughs) zone. I really enjoy, and Chelsea, I think you've, that Sarah also showed this movie to you recently. I love a hoax. (laughs) I love a hoax. I love a goof. I love people falling for it big time. I didn't realize to the extent how like integral that was to Blair Witch marketing. I'd seen like my short stories. I've seen this movie once or twice. I think that I was pre-poisoned by the infinity parodies of this movie. Mm -hmm. So that I had seen this movie parodied a hundred times before I ever watched it in like high school or college. And so I was especially scary movie. Right. I feel like scary movie is the main. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Huge. And it just like any like low hanging fruit for any comedy property. But I definitely remember I definitely saw a scary movie before I saw this. So by the time I actually saw it, I was like, oh, this is pretty scary. Like, but I, I was so like subconsciously exhausted by it because it was so everywhere and I wish that I had gotten to experience the moment where like people were like no these kids died and now they hired lookalike actors to promote the movie I was like oh my god 1999 was such a bizarrely innocent time that that could be true I don't know yeah I didn't have a huge connection to this movie but going back I can't imagine a more perfectly timed movie for like right before people figured out how to like hoax check shit on the internet Mm -hmm. but I just anything that involves an ARG or some sort of public hoax element I'm a huge sucker for like I know that the most famous example is like the Orson Welles War Mm -hmm. of the World one but there's also 
Chelsea, did you show Sarah or did Sarah? No, show she both showed of me. Us? I had never even heard of it, and I was shocked. Okay. I hadn't heard of it. It was fantastic. It was I so loved. Good. So, it. Wait, which what are you talking about? Pre-dating the Blair Witch Project, there was it's streaming for free on Tubi. Hashtag <laughs> Thank you, Tubi. Tubi heads. Thank you, Tubi. <laughs> Tubi or not Tubi. And I say, let's turn on Tubi, babes. Um, it's a fake documentary a mockumentary if you will called ghost watch it's a horror mockumentary that came out in 1992 was broadcast on the bbc on halloween night with real famous bbc anchors at the time playing Mm. out this hoax script that basically leads you to believe that there is a real haunting with like real people (gasps) dying the haunting comes to the studio it's like fucking amazing it's so good did you jamie catch all of the fox sister references in it because i was seeing mm-hmm. shit i was like the apples hanging they had like apples hanging from the ceiling which is how the fox yep. sisters duped people i think they live on like fox something road and i was just mm-hmm. like i get the jokes i love when i get the jokes <laughs> it was <laughs> or so, the references yeah it's spiritualism heavy it's like yeah. absolutely fantastic if you enjoyed the blair witch project you will also love ghost watch also ghost watch is like very funny it's all these like newsy anchor jokes caitlin i think you would love it okay i'll check it out i just love this very specific genre of horror mockumentary hoax horror yeah Mm -hmm. exactly and then it was really interesting doing research on i mean there's quite a bit written about not just like the production and the lore surrounding this movie but how it frames and portrays its main character heather there's a ton of shit to talk about there too i was very Mm -hmm. much in my like freshman sociology seminar bag prepping for this episode so i'm very excited to talk about it hell yeah let's take a quick break and then we'll come back for the recap the home depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this mother's day whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade at the home depot you could give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day savings event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options see homedepot.com slash delivery for details the home depot how doers get more done this is it your moment this is your time to make your comeback with purdue global when you come back with a purdue global degree you create opportunity for yourself your family and your future it's a degree you can be proud of a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today 
at purdueglobal.edu. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. And we are back. And here is the recap of the Blair Witch Project. So we open on text on screen that says that in October of 1994, three student filmmakers disappeared in the woods near Burkittsville, Maryland, while shooting a documentary. And then a year after their disappearance, their footage was found. And then we start watching the footage because this is famously a found footage style movie. We meet the director of the documentary, Heather, played by Heather Donahue. And she's just preparing for a trip to the woods to make this documentary on a local legend, the Blair Witch. Then we meet Josh, played by Joshua Leonard, who's helping Heather to shoot the doc on a 16 millimeter film camera. They then pick up Mike, played by Michael C. Williams, who they are meeting for the first time. They've kind of like hired him to be the sound guy. And then they start shooting some stuff, including shots of a cemetery that holds an unusually high number of graves of children, many of whom died in the 1940s. Which I was also just like, anytime they're like, oh, a lot of kids used to die. You're like, yeah. Yeah, like 50%. (laughs) That just used to be how it was. Also, (laughs) mad nerd time, dork report. I went to Burkittsville (laughs) and I took a picture exactly where Heather stood. Whoa. That's the greatest. I went with my friend Will Rogers, who is also a big Blair Witch head, who does all of our mm-hmm. voice acting. Mm-hmm. And we just had such a beautiful time. And we really wanted yeah. to camp, but we didn't have time. Mm-hmm. But I will camp in those woods one day. Caitlin, oh, you want to come? <laughs> Not even a little bit. So we also see them interviewing a few locals in Burkittsville, formerly known as Blair, Maryland. They're asking about the Blair Witch, and the locals share various scary stories and legends that they've heard over the years. There's mention of a man named Mr. Parr, who in 1940 murdered seven children, where he would bring them down to his basement in pairs and make one of them stand facing the corner while he killed the other one. Also, I guess we should have placed a trigger warning at the top of this because there will be a lot of discussion of Guys, uh, murder it's the Blair I this is the one time where I'm like if you need a trigger warning for the Blair Witch Project I literally do not know what to tell you that's fair uh, that's fair yes I'm a conservative on this issue <laughs> she's putting her foot down on this world culture yes just so you know everyone children aren't murdered on screen but there's a lot of like lore that is talked about in the movie 
and a lot of it is children dying. It's the Blair Witch Project, you guys. <laughs> it is the Blair Witch Project. If I receive a single email about this, I'm going to lose it. <laughs> okay. So they also interview a woman named Mary Brown, who has a reputation around town as being like, you know, not very reliable. She's quote unquote, a lunatic. And she talks about how she had an encounter with possibly the Blair Witch when she was a child. And she describes what she saw. And it's scary and spooky. And she's like, fucking iconic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she is the legend. Oh, I just absolutely <laughs> adore her. Mm -hmm. And I love that the movie, spoiler alert, bears out that she was completely right the whole time. Mm -hmm. And that they are, I guess, plot punished for assuming the worst of her yeah mm. true mm -hmm. that was also the only movie that that actor ever acted in i believe well actually she signed up to be an intern they advertised in like the local paper that oh, they no needed way. an intern and she showed up and her house was exactly like that including like the weird stick fence so she's very much like I'm sure we'll get into this, but all mm -hmm. many of the actors were just people who lived in the town who were told a rough outline of what they wanted them to say. And then they ad-libbed like the whole thing. Oh, interesting. OK. Which is like amazing because it's like all of them are great. Yeah. Everyone is great. So the performances yeah, her, are yeah. incredible. Her name was Patricia DeCoo. R.I.P. She has passed away. So let's yes. yeah, rip. Oh, rip in heaven. Patty. I yeah she was wonderful and I also loved the interview that I always remember is the mom with the oh, kid who's like mm -hmm. it's just a scary story and I guess <laughs> that she also that was like basically no instruction whatsoever it was just like Chelsea correct me if I'm wrong but just like pretend you know what the Blair Witch is yeah. and like here's sort of what you should say and she did not sign a release and so the filmmakers had to like try to find her for weeks because she just gave the best improvised interview oh. and <laughs> for some reason that's the interview I mean like obviously Mary Brown but I love the mom one it felt so real she's amazing and the little girl the whole time is like trying to close her mouth she keeps being no no and then she goes it's just a scary story it's not real and then she turns to the camera and just goes it's real it's so, <laughs> so or no good. it's true and it's yeah. so funny but i did really quick watch today an interview with them like that was made in like 2020 or 2019 and the girls all grown up and hear this oh. she is wearing a corn sweatshirt and i thought that was okay incredible okay what a okay legend. girl uh-huh i love it <laughs> i want to be her friend which if you think about it corn was one of the big instigators unintentionally of woodstock 99 which is happening in the same mm, year which oh i feel God. is an interesting right. cultural it's all connected coincidence. <laughs> yeah it is were we ever so young <laughs> Okay, so then it's day two of shooting. We see an interview that they shoot with two fishermen who tell the filmmakers about a girl from the 1800s who also allegedly had an encounter with a witch in the woods. And then they park their car and head into the woods with these big heavy backpacks. They've got all of their film equipment and they're making their way to Coffin Rock, where, as legend has it, five men were bound together, disemboweled, 
markings were etched into their skin, and then their bodies mysteriously vanished as if someone had taken them. Each man's hands tied to another man's feet. It's just the way Heather talks when she's on camera. It's I was so going to say, I love, she, it's so student film where no. she's just like clearly, I don't know, parroting like TV talk. Yeah. It's so good. It's yeah. so good. Like a Discovery Channel documentary or something. Mm-hmm. It's perfect. <laughs> Her performance is just like, ugh, just unbelievable. So good. True. Mm-hmm. True. Then after Coffin Rock, they set up a tent and camp in the woods that night. We cut to the next morning. So it's like day three of shooting. Josh is talking about noises he heard the night before. There was like a cackling outside their tent. And they're like, ooh, yikes. But let's keep going. (laughs) So they start hiking through the woods to find a cemetery that's supposed to be there. But there's no trail. They're kind of lost. They argue about where they're going and whether or not Heather knows where they actually are. Tension is very high among the group. But then they finally figure out where they are and they come upon this kind of like makeshift cemetery where it's these strange piles of rocks that someone had clearly like assembled. It wasn't just found this way in nature. And then there are like these sort of like man-made nests in trees that are also filled with rocks. And Heather's like, didn't Mary Brown say something about piles of rocks where she was like referencing the Bible? And they're trying to figure out what the significance of these rocks could be. And I love how it's like explicitly said, like, oh, I just didn't listen to her. I didn't take her seriously. Yeah, like, I, thought I thought she, she was, was crazy. Lunatic. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And then it's like, well... Sorry, bitch. You gotta you listen. You should have listened to our friend Mary. Always mm-hmm. listen to women that live in the woods. That's like <laughs> a basic rule. Yeah. Stick fence, listen up. That's what mm-hmm. I say. <laughs> this person has something to say. That's rule of survival number one. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that night they set up camp again by this makeshift cemetery they hear some more scary sounds off in the distance but they don't see anything then we cut to the next morning and now they're headed back to the car but they're deep in the woods they might be lost again heather is constantly insisting that she knows exactly where they are but Josh and Mike are both pissed at her and they do not manage to make it to the car. So they have to set up camp again and sleep in the woods that night when, and then they hear the same strange noises as the night before. It sounds like large branches are cracking. They hear footsteps. They're very scared. And every night it gets closer and lasts longer. Is that the general it intensifies yeah Yeah. every night Mm -hmm. they wake up the following morning to discover that someone or something has made three piles of rocks right outside their tent almost as if to symbolize the three filmmakers and their graves Mm. anyway so they're like (laughs) let's get the fuck out of here so they pack up but oh no they can't find the map So now they're more lost than ever. They accuse Heather of losing the map. And so they're very pissed at her again until Mike admits that he threw the map in the creek the day before because he thought it was useless. He kicked it. Kicked it. Yeah. What a tantrum. Yeah. A map. What a big baby. What a. Ooh. (laughs) 
I forgot because I Heather's apology is so iconic um, that I sort of forgot that it's basically Mike's fault that they're lost. Yeah. I feel like Mike, you know, he has his moments throughout the movie, but Mike, he's got to go. He does. And he, and he does. He, he does. Yeah. He do, I mean, fair enough. He does. <laughs> yeah. So they're very pissed at Mike for doing this. They get into a screaming match. They eventually calm down, but the whole crew is now extremely defeated. They find another spot where there's all sorts of scary stuff. These like sticks that have been tied together, they sort of look like stick figure drawings. They're like the iconic image of this movie, very recognizable. But they're still lost, and so they have to make camp again for the night. And they wake up in the middle of the night to voices right outside their tent. And then suddenly there's something kind of like rustling their tent from the outside. So they take off running, but it's dark and they can't really see, and they're super freaked out. They find a spot to hide until the sun comes up. And then they return to their campsite. Their stuff has been fucked with. Josh's belongings are covered in this like weird slime, some witch goo or something. And they're all just like absolutely on the brink of losing their minds. It also seems like they're going in circles where they spent an entire day walking in one direction. They walked south, but they still somehow ended up at the same exact spot where they started that day. There's like this log that had like fallen over a creek and they end up at the same log. One of the scariest parts to me. Yeah. This isn't a spoiler, but the third installment of the franchise, um, simply called Blair Witch. You're like a full franchise. (laughs) I'm a franchise head. It takes that concept and like really heightens it in that movie, basically to suggest that the Blair Witch is capable of like, either skewing people's perception of reality or maybe she's like messing with their compasses or just like doing something to kind of like alter the space-time continuum so that they like are constantly lost and it's not clear exactly what's happening in this movie where again they walk in one direction but somehow have still walked in a circle so it's like what has the witch done to make that possible but um, this is a movie and like a franchise that had to like work backwards a little bit to create lore to continue the franchise. And I'm always fascinated at how you're like, mm -hmm. oh, sure. Yes. It's the the witch can alter the space time continuum. And that makes sense Mm -hmm. that that would happen. They didn't just get (laughs) lost because they didn't have a map. It was the Mm space-time continuum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) We'll talk about the production. It is not really super relevant to the topic of our show, but I just do need to talk about it because it's so fucking weird. But like Mm -hmm. the actors also did not know they were going to end up in the same place at the end of the day. Like those are like somewhat genuine reactions. It's so bizarre because I guess they had an I think I think they say in the movie 15 hours, but it it was not 15 hours, but it was eight hours. That they were hiking, only to be led back to the same spot. I, too, (laughs) would react. Would cry. I would cry so hard. (laughs) There's so many good moments with Heather where she is, like, really trying to keep things at bay. Clearly feels a sense of, 
like confidence that turns into guilt as the movie goes on. And then you just like hear how she's uh, when she's at the log and she's like, it's the same log. You're like, mm-hmm. no. Yeah. She's like in denial for a while because Heather's like a big denial person. And yeah. she's presented in denial. And then that's kind of the moment that she breaks and doesn't want to be filmed, I believe, at that moment for the first time. And is, mm-hmm. you know, everybody's been like, stop filming, stop filming, stop filming. What are you doing? And then mm-hmm. they kind of all break and they start berating Heather until she basically breaks down um, by filming her and filming her and filming her, which I think is also a very interesting commentary on what I'm not 100% sure, but it's there. (laughs) Let's speculate later. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't find a piece of writing that I completely was like, oh, this, this is the thing. But I've, there's been a lot written about controlling the narrative, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm Mm -hmm. I'm very excited to talk about it. Yeah. So they've arrived at the same spot that they were already at. So they went in one big circle. So they have to make camp again. And they do. And the next morning, Heather and Mike wake up and Josh is nowhere to be found but all of his stuff is still there. So they're freaking out. They decide to head east this time, but they still can't get unlost. So they have to make camp again that night. And they hear what appears to be Josh's voice calling out in agony outside of their tent. Mm-hmm. But they, you know, again, they, they can't see they don't know where he is there's not much they can really do they wake up the next morning there's a bundle of sticks outside of their tent heather undoes the bundle and inside is what appears to be josh's shirt and wrapped inside the shirt is blood there's like some teeth and a tongue maybe some fingers little body parts you know and heather's like let me say nothing she Let's does not, not tell panic. Mike. <laughs> she's like, if I don't say anything, it never happened. So she's like uh-huh. trying to keep it together. Then we get that iconic scene, the close up of Heather's face. She has like kind of gone off into the woods alone at night. She's crying. She's apologizing. She completely improvised speech. So amazing. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She knows she's going to die and she's basically saying like, I am to blame for what happened and I'm so sorry. Then she hears something. It is a man calling out for help. So Heather and Mike reunite and go looking for him. They come upon this dilapidated house. They go inside thinking that Josh might be in there and they hear yelling coming from upstairs so they make their way through the rooms around corners they don't find anything then they go downstairs to the basement they're again just running through the house rounding corners it's so scary yeah it's so good <laughs> then they so they're in the basement mike is kind of ahead of heather they both have cameras rolling she keeps kind of losing him. So she's like screaming. Then we get a shot of Mike's camera and he drops it as if he's been kind of like attacked. Then we cut to Heather and her camera. She's still going down the stairs. Then she goes into the basement and sees Mike standing in the corner facing <laughs> the wall. She screams. She drops her camera camera as if she was attacked by the Blair Witch but you never actually see the witch on screen 
And then that's the end of the movie. Due to budgetary <laughs> reasons. It's so good. It's so much oh, better so that they didn't show. Yeah, It's the Jaws yeah. effect. It's the monster problem, Less right? Where you show the monster and it ruins it. It's always going to mm-hmm. be scarier in your imagination. And so many horror yeah. movies do that at the end. You're like, no, that sucks. <laughs> what you just yeah. showed me sucks. <laughs> it's ruined. We didn't need to see your goofy no. looking monster. Unless it's Tim Curry in it. Yeah. <laughs> Plus it's Tim Show Curry me that monster. and a weird spider at the end of it. Yeah, rip its heart out. I read that they had someone appear and like they thought they shot footage, but it didn't come out or something like that of like someone on the production wearing all white and wearing white pantyhose on their head. And then yeah. they were like, that, no, uh, no, <laughs> don't need to well, show that. That was like, I don't know it, even if they meant to show it or not. But they did that as part of what we'll get into, the making of the film. And it's the part where Heather's going, what the fuck is that? What the Mm -hmm. fuck is that? And she just turned and she had no idea that someone was going to be in all white, like running beside her. It's so wild. Oh, so scary. Uh, Let's take another quick break and we'll come back to discuss. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. And 
And we're back. Uh, I would love to start by talking about the production of yes. this movie, just because it feels so important to like so much. I mean, I guess maybe not to feminism, but whatever. It's so important. I think there's relevant stuff yeah, here. There so. very much is. This is, I mean, this is a movie written and, I mean, written quote unquote, because it's heavily improvised, outlined mm-hmm. and directed by two guys, Daniel Merrick and Eduardo Sanchez. Mm-hmm. And we've like heavily implied this so far. But what I didn't realize is this is like the X Games of improv. <laughs> yes. And great that, way to put it. The actors like were actually obviously knew they were in a movie, but did not know what was going to happen. They did not know who was going to die or when. The part that like sits least well with me about the turbo improv approach is that they were given less and less food. So that they're acting like, I mean, the ethical issues are many, but I just I had no idea that that is the way that this movie was made. And I found it fascinating yeah the directors and then there's a producer named greg (laughs) who were (laughs) real greg behavior (laughs) truly (laughs) they in the casting call let people who auditioned know that it would be a highly improvised difficult shoot and then they all got paid like five hundred dollars or something oh it's non-union with pay travel and meals, three weeks in Maryland, extremely challenging roles to be shot under very difficult conditions. And you're like, God, we got to be on strike forever. This can't. can't." (laughs) Featuring Uh, lifelong trauma. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, truly. Yeah. The bar is low, but at least they let the actors know that it would be very difficult and strenuous because we've come across casting situations like this where the filmmakers did not let the actors know to what extent they would have to be true. i think we talked about was that the human centipede episode maybe that like the actors were not fully filled in on like what they would have um, to be doing physically and like the various i think so. horror things they'd have to endure cannibal holocaust did that i don't know oh, if really? that's what you're thinking of it could maybe? be i wouldn't be surprised if it was also the human centipede <laughs> though it's interesting because as brutal as this shoot sounded it doesn't sound like any of the lasting trauma for the actors which is mainly we're talking about heather donahue who has since changed her name to ray hance that was as of 2020 which i think i haven't looked into it thoroughly but i think is at least somewhat related to the fact that the blair witch project uses their (laughs) full names Mm -hmm. but i didn't find very much about like being particularly traumatized by the production of the movie, but rather more of like after it came out. Right. Especially for Ray Hans, Heather Donahue at the time. And that's mm-hmm. also the name of the character. So she's given a number of interviews over the years. And I find her to be very interesting because I'm curious what you both remember about the reception of this movie when it came out. It sounds like, I mean, all three of the actors, you know, because of sort of the naivete of like 1999 brain, some people were like pissed off that they were actors that were not dead, um, (laughs) which sounds Mm -hmm. stressful in itself. But it sounds like Heather in particular caught a ton of shit for this. She got 
the Razzie for worst actress, which makes absolutely no sense. Absolutely mm. no sense. No. It infuriates me beyond she all. She gives the performance of the movie easily. Like, I was completely shocked by that. I want to share a quote from her. Yeah. Where she speaks to that. Actor formerly known as Heather Donahue says, mm. quote, I had actually done a student film two years before with a young female filmmaker who definitely had a lot of bravado. I had to think, what kind of woman would actually keep the camera running through horrible times? A normal person would have stopped filming, so I had to take that character to that extra driven angle. I don't think there were a lot of female characters like that in movies at the time. Definitely, I feel like things have changed a lot. There's been a little more leeway for female characters. Mm. I won the Razzie for Worst Actress that year, and I think that was partly because of the character being judged rather than the performance. She was a very driven woman who didn't wear mascara and was on camera in 1999, unquote. So she's basically saying, like, people hated that character because of... And, you know, we'll talk about that and the gender of it all in a bit but like the gender of it all. (laughs) yeah she was like unfairly criticized as a performer because of the way her character is and again it doesn't help that like her full name was used which she also regrets yeah that's like her biggest regret of the movie because she like couldn't escape the Blair Witch Project because her full name was used as the character she plays which I feel like that's a bad idea but also I've read different like people are like the filmmaker shouldn't have done that I'm like I agree with that but also the filmmakers could not have possibly seen this indie movie making a quarter billion dollars like it is just (laughs) very unfortunate that that happened to all three of them but I think it's particularly like it seems to have affected the actor formerly known as Heather Donahue (laughs) especially because of how particular and like it seems gender that backlash was towards her Mm -hmm. well also to speak to the Razzie again it's like really (laughs) absurd to me because as we've talked about the acting was also kind of real like she was actually very very scared right and Mm -hmm. to give a little bit more about the production basically how it went was Each day, the actors would get GPS coordinates to go to. And -hmm. when they got there, they would find like a box with information, very scant information about whatever they needed to get across that day, information-wise, plot-wise. And Mm -hmm. then pretty much everything else was improvised. So ARG. yeah. It's so bizarre. Yeah, And yeah, the directors, producers following them through the woods, screaming at night. At one point, they (laughs) they recorded one of the director's kids that lived across the street just playing and doing whatever they did and just boom boxed it outside their tent as we mentioned there was the guy who in all white you know there was like the baby crying they set up all of the stick figures none of that none of those things were things that the cast was aware of at the time Mm -hmm. um so it's like they were very very scared they didn't know the tent was going to start shaking (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. it's like i don't understand how i would be interested to see if the razzies i mean i guess they would have come out before scary movie because scary movie was 2000 but in Mm -hmm. scary movie they just take the snot scene which Mm -hmm. unfortunately kind of became the most famous scene in the movie because when heather is crying 
and apologizing to Josh's mom and Mike's mom and her own mom. And it's such Mm -hmm. good acting. And she's got snot coming out of her mouth, which is amazing. Like, it makes the scene so real. It's, like, silly, but you're also like, yeah, that's what happens when you cry that fucking hard. Like, having an actor (laughs) cry so hard that snot is coming out of her mouth is good acting. (laughs) And then it was parodied in Scary Movies so much, and it was just, like, so much snot coming out of her mouth. That was funny. uh, But, you know, it's like, it just, it cast a pall kind of backwards on the movie, and now people just think of her with snot pouring out of her nose. Which, uh, it's so annoying. It's so unfair to her. And I mean, she also in that same interview that you're quoting, Caitlin, like describes like the frustration of like using her real name, making her essentially like IP belonging to the mm-hmm. Blair Witch Expanded Universe, which sounds infinitely frustrated again in a way that I don't think is malicious because who could have seen it? But it's still like it seems like the conversation and the parodying around this movie affected her particularly in ways that feel very like of the time because we don't even see Heather on screen very much because like she as we'll talk about in a bit is like for the most part dictating what you see and how you perceive what's going on but for the few shots I guess that like people were fat shaming her or like judging her body and like which is just I'm This is a quote from, I believe this is from The Week, oral history of this movie that came out eight or so years ago. Mm -hmm. She says, no size eight woman was playing the lead in dirty jeans with no mascara with unwashed hair. No ingenue was willing to be so unfuckable. I was the most unfuckable ingenue to ever be in a blockbuster. But that was the thrill, the fuck you thrill of it. How could I say no to that? Nobody wanted me to go into the woods with a bunch of strange guys. But how could I say no to improvising an entire feature without a stitch of makeup with layers of clothes and dirt and knives and nothing but a pile of rocks to scare you with. Bad ass. Mm, she yeah. seems really fucking cool. And then she retired from acting and became a weed farmer. And I'm just like, <laughs> God bless. I can't. Good for you. Also, before she got cast in the movie, she was a founding member of an improv company called Red Shag, and she was in a feminist off-off Broadway fringe movement theater called Collision Theory. So feminist icon, actor formerly known as Heather Donahue, in a feminist off-Broadway fringe movement theater. It's so fucking cool. But it's like just even hearing, I think part of the point of this, like part of what makes this movie plausible is that everyone looks like people. And Mm -hmm. like after several days in the woods, which they were, everyone looks like shit because how could you not look like shit? But of course the only backlash, it like you don't hear about how Mike looks like shit after three years in the woods. You only hear Mm -hmm. how Heather looks like shit and judgments of her, which again, it's like for this time is not at all surprising, but I was surprised at how much it seemed to really affect the actor's life moving forward. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate that she's been vocal about that through the years. And it's funny because it's like, she's not even, it's not that she's unsupportive of the franchise. Like she mentions that she saw the 2016 Blair Witch movie and thought it was really good and all this stuff, but also met with the filmmakers or the producers or whoever was in control of the franchise and was like, please just keep my name out of it. Because the franchise, like as you both know, continues with like her brother goes back to try to find out what happened. And it's like, Mm -hmm her name is like connected as a dead person. It just sounds like yeah. 
absolutely maddening. And also I'm like, how many people in the world have ever had this problem? It must be very isolating to have this problem. It's (laughs) so specific. Because as part of the marketing gimmick of this movie, one of the co-directors, Eduardo Sanchez, set up this, what became a famous website to help promote the film. But it was basically feeding into the illusion that this was a real documentary, that these were not actors, they were student filmmakers making a documentary, and that they died in the woods. Mm. So much so that like, those three actors were like, listed as having been deceased on IMDb for like, a full year or something like that. And a bunch of people thought that those people had actually died. And so like, um, so the actor's parents were getting calls being yeah. like, I'm so sorry that your kid died. Like, condolences And calls. like, what kind of weird-ass person is like, I've got to call up this mom <laughs> give condolences. It's so strange. And to add to that, they also, like made missing posters for them and posted them on college campuses, which was so smart because that's like definitely the age I feel like that was going to go to this movie. Mm -hmm. And so even at the premiere, they handed out posters and I want to get my mitts on one of those original posters so bad of all the missing people. But yeah, it's like they really went hard. They didn't do any press before the movie, the actors, Mm -hmm. and they never showed any trailers. And that was another, you know, so they saved a bunch of money on advertising, which was just really smart by doing this like guerrilla marketing campaign. And I think that like, not that like a ton of people, like except you, Chelsea, like would have seen the sci-fi, the doc on sci-fi ahead of time, but that just like lends the credibility of what you're seeing. It's just, ugh, it's so cool. They put it out three days before. Which was cool. It was like That's three so days smart. before it premiered in like wide release. Yeah, so smart. And I didn't, I also didn't realize just like when I was reading through the oral history that originally like the whole sort of mockumentary aspect and like cutting out to members of the family as like, and you know they die at the beginning of the movie. It was not supposed to be all found footage, but then it just like the filmmakers executed everything so well and the actors did such a good job at like being in the X Games of Improv that that was the movie. (laughs) It's so fucking cool so the last making of anecdote i wanted to share that has nothing to do with our show but i just thought was funny was that josh did not know that he was going to die but then like got one of their like freaky little messages and was like hey (laughs) wait till mike and heather go to bed tonight and then just like leave the tent and he didn't know yeah. why he was being forced to leave the tent. And then the filmmakers were like, all right, you're dead. Let's go to Denny's. And then they brought him yeah. to Denny's. So they're like, oh, that's oh, cool. You're done. Denny's is perfect. Isn't that so funny? That is exactly where I would want to go after oh that. <laughs> Denny's, it's an American institution. <laughs> it's always there for you anytime. Oh. So if it hasn't been clear, the cast camped in the woods through basically the entire eight-day shoot. So they weren't like shooting, you know, your standard whatever, 14, 16-hour day kind of thing, and then like going into a trailer or going in. I think they did spend one night in a hotel, and it was because 
their campsite was basically flooded, just water everywhere, like an inch of water in their tents kind of thing. <laughs> and the filmmakers are like, well, we can't kill them. We're only paying them $500 for <laughs> yeah. the worst days of their lives. <laughs> but the rest of the time, they were actually like camping in the woods during the entire shoot so it was like very uncomfortable and like we mentioned before the crew was like feeding them less and less they were like you know your safety is important to us we're never gonna like put you in extreme harm's way but we also want you to be very uncomfortable so like they would scale back on the amount of food that they gave the cast each day so that when they were like, we're very tired and hungry, like that was coming, which is like very abusive. Yeah. As we alluded to, it just sounds miserable. Yeah. And it was unclear of like how much of that was communicated in advance. Like Mm -hmm. I wasn't able to find like super extreme detail other than they were told in advance that it was going to be a very difficult shoot, but I don't know like if they were like told that they would not receive enough food kind of thing yeah but yeah i mean i think that the ethics of this movie are definitely like can and should be called into Mm -hmm. question i'm not advocating for these kinds of movies to be made more but it's pretty fucking cool (laughs) some good performances out of it so um i want to say one last quote from the actor who plays Heather Donahue, she says, quote, it's very hard for me to talk about the backlash because for me, it was so directly personal. It was my mother getting sympathy cards. It was people coming up to me on the street telling me that they wished I was dead, saying they wanted their money back. They're such weirdos. Freak show. Weirdo. <laughs> Just, <laughs> for being in a movie. Like, go home. Get a job. It was me in my 84 Toyota Silica breaking down in L.A. on La Cienega underneath a billboard with my own face on it. It was a profoundly surreal experience. She rocks. I feel like her treatment by the public upon this movie coming out is not dissimilar from her treatment within the movie and maybe i'm reading too much into things here let me know what y'all think of this because as i was watching the movie and having not to brag or anything but having directed a few student films myself i was picking up on a very familiar sensation of like implicit gender bias where obviously the cast of this movie slash the crew making this documentary about the Blair Witch within this movie has one woman and two men. And the woman is in charge. She's the director of the movie. This is her project. It seems like it was her idea to do this and that these two guys are just helping her make it. And throughout the movie, they are constantly getting pissed at her and blaming her for everything that goes wrong now are they pissed at her specifically because she's in charge and when things go wrong you generally blame the person in charge or are they pissed at her because she's a woman and they don't trust that she's capable and that they don't trust that she can get them back safely and all of these things is it maybe a little bit of column a and column b because like They never explicitly say anything like, 
I don't trust you or think that you're capable because you're a woman. But also, a lot of sexism is not that explicit. It is extremely implicit. Because like, again, I've been in situations where I was like, the only femme person. And in many of those cases, like I was in charge. And I was surrounded by men. And I could tell that the men around me just like weren't taking me seriously. They were questioning my judgment. They weren't trusting that I could get the job done. They were blaming me for anything that went wrong, regardless if it was my fault or not. And no one like, outwardly said, I don't trust you because of your gender. But when something like that is happening, you can just like tell that you people are perceiving you in that way. And so I'm convinced that these two men kept getting so pissed at Heather because of this implicit gender bias. Is she making mistakes along the way? Sure. <laughs> but I do feel like she's the subject of this like unfair scrutiny because she's a woman in charge. That's also supported by the fact that so much of this movie is improvised under duress. So it's like your mm -hmm. natural biases, you know, and this is not to say that the two actors hate women or anything like that. But I do feel like the instructions they're given are so vague that like, of course, your biases are going to sort of like bubble to the surface in those kinds of situations it feels like a very mm -hmm. bizarre like a stanford prison experiment kind of way to reveal those biases mm -hmm. i was struggling most with mike at the beginning and then as the movie went on i thought josh was more interesting because josh mm. starts out like he's her friend and yeah. he is defensive of her towards the beginning but when things start to go wrong in a meaningful way he turns on her mm -hmm. and I feel like I've certainly had experiences like that with men <laughs> that like start on your side. But when it's like, oh, no, they kind of leave your side mm -hmm. when it counts. And in a way that totally blows up in Josh's face because Mike's the one who fucking kicked the map into the creek. Mm -hmm. So yeah. whatever. Mm -hmm. But I felt I, I also had that same tingling sensation of just oh yeah, of course they're going to turn on her faster and they are going to assume less competence. And all of this yeah. is complicated by the fact that none of them are experienced in what they're doing. <laughs> like they're student <laughs> filmmakers. They don't fucking know what they're doing. But I think it's clear, especially as things get worse and worse, that Heather is more quickly turned on. And like that leads up to the scene that we've already started talking about, but I want to talk more about of like where she's antagonized by Josh. Yeah. And that's a you know mm -hmm. conflict that is never resolved between them due to their dying. <laughs> Yes. Well, and it's just like, I think it would be the only way to really test it because, you know, Heather makes mistakes. Mm -hmm. There's some hubris there. She thinks she knows where she's going. Mm -hmm. Things that would piss me off if I were one of those guys, totally. for sure. But had the director been a man, I don't think there would have ever been a scene where they're like berating this man and filming right. this man. Mm -hmm. And I think there would have been like more willingness to collaborate on the problem versus just like kind of blaming up Heather her. and ganging up on her. And like, yeah, so I don't think Heather's like some angelic, innocent woman character no, um, who's completely unfairly treated. But like, I just think the way that we'd be able to really see is like switching out 
Heather for mm-hmm. a male director. And I don't imagine that it would have gone the same way. I think there might have been fist fights, perhaps, but um, I don't even know about that. Yeah. I think the thing that struck me the most outside of them, like, accosting her was, and the first sort of inkling that, like, Josh is maybe has more of this inherent bias that he probably thinks he does is that he is very, very quick to believe that Heather lost the map. Mm-hmm, he mm-hmm. is, he, that is like the first time that you're like, Oh, that's your friend. Where, where are you now? But he goes with Mike's version of the story over Heather's seemingly for no for a reason that wasn't clear to me yeah. and I feel like his behavior towards her I mean I think it's like intentional in the way that it's written and performed but like there is like trust that is broken between these two friends that feels yeah it is like a tricky combination of leadership and like who is sort of on top of the pile whose project are we here for Mm -hmm. probably for no money because you're in college and the gender dynamics so it's so wild like i can't believe this movie exists because you're like i'm sure that there's a bit of all of the actors whether they like it or not in how that plays out Mm -hmm. but i like i think that while all of these things are true like heather can be up her own ass at moments and i like Mm. that they are like she's an arrogant film student too like she doesn't know what she's doing none of them know Mm -hmm. what they're doing it's the way that they treat each other once they all realize they're in way over their head that I feel like is telling. Well, to that, like you said, Jamie, I appreciate that we have a flawed female character on screen because so few movies allow a woman or a femme of any kind to be flawed. They're so often portrayed as these like one dimensional, perfect little angels who never make mistakes. They have no bad qualities, which is obviously not what being a human is. Right. Or like the expectation of like hyper competence in any woman in the front of a movie. Right. So I like that she is, yeah, she displays a lot of hubris. Although I do believe because one of the major sources of tension between them is that they keep blaming her for getting them lost and Mm. she keeps insisting that they are not lost and it's hard to tell what's actually true like does she know exactly where they are in the map and where they are going like she says she does and it's just (laughs) the witch who is again like altering their perception (laughs) of reality or whatever the witch does is it that she's like too proud to admit that mm-hmm. she is actually lost and she wants to inspire confidence that she is capable and she does know where they're going and that she's not leading them to danger, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But because sense of direction has so many gender stereotypes attached to it in that <laughs> men stereotypically are perceived as a gender that is really good at directions and they know where they're going and they just have an inherent sense of direction and then they can just look up at the sky or alternatively i think that there is like a uh, stereotype that i find less true as time goes on but that if they are lost they cannot admit it they won't stop and ask they will not directions. stop at the gas station right. no. <laughs> yeah it's so embarrassing <laughs> meanwhile women are perceived stereotypically as people who 
have a really bad sense of direction mm-hmm. and who just like cannot navigate where they are or where they're going. And I think that plays a large part into why I feel like there's such strong implicit gender bias among these characters is because such a huge part of the tension between them is maps and senses mm-hmm. of direction mm-hmm. and where they're going and that kind of stuff. Even when Mike admits to kicking the map, he blames Heather by saying it was useless anyway. So, mm-hmm. like, I kicked it because you got us lost to the point where this map is useless. So why not just fucking kick it in? Because, yeah. you know, it didn't and matter she's anyway. so furious because she's like, it was useless to you, parentheses, because you don't know how to read it. But it was not useless to me. I knew exactly where we were on that map. And I like believe her as she's saying that. Like, I think that's probably legitimately well, true. And it's just that the witch is doing totally to them. <laughs> Even if she's not telling the truth there, like that's not the reason that he doesn't believe her. So it doesn't even right, matter exactly. to me. It doesn't like, matter. Because I honestly, I was like, I don't know if I believe her. It seems like she was kind of bullshitting to some extent in the previous day, but it's like, it doesn't really matter because I think that like Mike doing that is even more telling because he doesn't know her. He has no reason to not trust that she doesn't know what she's talking about. He met her yesterday. So this is like a bias (laughs) that has nothing to do with who she is. Right. (sighs) Damn. I mean, there's like, I don't know if we have more Heather, but I think there is another female character or woman character that we need to discuss and that is the witch the Blair Witch yeah Blair Witch yeah (laughs) 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 and you know I think like when you do watch the Blair Witch Project you don't get any information about kind of where or who this Blair Witch actually was. When you watch the documentary, you learn about the character of Ellie Kedwick, who Mm -hmm. was a witch who was accused of, like, drinking the blood of children. And these children Mm -hmm. in the town came, or, like, the whole town then, like, tied her to a tree. She died of exposure. She had, like, strange symbols carved into her by this group. So it is kind of a satanic panic situation originally. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you don't know was this witch actually doing these things because after she gets murdered essentially kids still start disappearing in the town right so that's Mm -hmm. when it takes on this sort of paranormal dimension and what I think is so interesting is we get the character in the Blair Witch Project and then also in like all the supplementary stuff of Rustin Parr who Mm -hmm. is the child murderer from the 1940s who just um, wild because his name is so rest in peace oh yeah that's my brilliant contribution it's based on Rustin Rasputin's name, though. It's, yeah. I love Rasputin. Me too. Yeah. So Ellie Kedward is a close anagram to Edward Kelly, who I forget who that is, uh, but child murderer. Yeah. Okay. Right, right, right. I was like, we we have the right guest on. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Uh, I just read about it on Scholarly Journal Wikipedia and then immediately forgot who it was. Uh, Rustin Parr is a character name or like part of the lore because the directors were like what's an anagram for rasputin so <laughs> wow yeah. jamie i i need to correct myself really quick had. edward kelly was a an occultist I okay see. okay i don't think he murdered anyone okay. Got just it. you know for 
Edward Kelly innocent. <laughs> Accuracy <laughs> sake. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but all this to say, and we've talked about the representation of witches in many episodes. We've covered a lot of witch movies. And we're fans uh, and of witch media in general. True. How could sure. you not be? I was making a, a list of everything we've covered. We've done The Vavitch. We've done Witches. We've done Witches of Eastwick. The Love Witch. The Craft. Practical Magic. Hocus Pocus. I would even throw Kiki's Delivery Service Halloween in there. Halloween Town. Um, <laughs> we love a witch. Right. And many movies that are not necessarily specifically about witches, but have witch characters such as The Wizard of Oz mm-hmm. and things like that. Witches are very pervasive in Hollywood media and especially horror media. And if you're covering movies that center women, you're going to end up covering a lot of movie about witches. <laughs> very true. It's true. Like positively and negatively. Right. Because, I mean, most of these witch movies are playing into the stereotypes and the popularly held misconception that, you know, witches are evil, they're agents of the devil, they're malicious, they're almost always women, which like kind of lends this sort of like, well, women equals witches equals women are evil, which is a belief that got a lot of people, again, mostly women, killed during various witch hunts and witch trials throughout history. Even though, as we've discussed on other episodes, people who were perceived to be witches throughout history were usually just like empowered women or people who didn't conform to... Yeah, unmarried women. (laughs) Healers, uh, people who didn't conform to very rigid roles as far as like gender and sexuality and things like that throughout history and then people are like oh well they must be a witch and then a lot of them were persecuted this movie is doing the same shit (laughs) absolutely (laughs) yeah chelsea i'm curious what your thoughts are on that because it's very interesting to me that like you see some sort of transgressive ideas with Heather and by centering her, but it does feel like there is like a sameness, even though the way that this movie presents everything is so different, but there is a sameness to like a woman crosses a boundary and like gets a little too Mm -hmm. curious. I think that's another trope that is kind of present here and not really challenged. And yeah, the idea of the witch is just like reinforced forced in a way that I didn't even really almost notice the first time because you don't see the witch, which I think helps, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't really resolve the issue. Mm -hmm. Right. You don't get who the witch was in the actual movie. Then you get the background, which does kind of present a possible false accusation, but then kind of, okay, children are still getting murdered. This vengeful ghost is still kind of coming after children. And I think that there's a lot to do with the satanic panic in this movie, especially as it relates to women. Um, and for anyone uninitiated into the satanic panic uh, in the 80s and 90s, there were tons of accusations of satanic cults kidnapping and ritually abusing children. And that's, this was just an idea so widely held that like Oprah, Geraldo, police departments all over the country were trained in spotting satanic ritual abuse. Um, People were recovering memories 
by like dubious therapy techniques of mm. abuses in their childhood that were so outrageous that it's so difficult to believe now that this ever happened. Children were also being coerced unintentionally by therapists and ended up in saying that all these things happened, like that their teachers in their daycares, which was like a big place, like daycares were the center of this, mm-hmm. like their teachers were not only abusing them, but they were like putting them in kiddie pools full of baby sharks that were biting them and that they, their teachers were flying around on broomsticks and they were flushed down the toilet to like live in the basement and that there was like a gorilla's arm ripped off and a horse was sacrificed in the classroom and yet no shred of physical evidence was ever found. I know all of this and it is never less shocking to just hear it sort of rattled <laughs> off in a list. <laughs> yeah, like, let's just, you know, right, bop, bop, baby bop. sharks, gorilla arm, <laughs> right, 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 right. You know, so it is so difficult to believe now and yet it was like a widely held belief in the 90s. There was also a lot of media and like yeah children's toys and a lot of things that were blamed for perpetuating this panic yes yes well. rock music yeah D D. Yeah, yeah absolutely everything was suspect in the 80s and 90s that fundamentalists didn't like or feminists because feminists were also unfortunately mm-hmm. part of this as well um mm-hmm. not necessarily for any reason other than trying to protect children and not being educated on kind of what was going on because guess what we probably all would have been like part of this because when you were in it, it was so scary. You don't have any evidence that this wasn't happening. It's such an amazing story that there is like satanic cults in the woods. Mm. Uh, It's like, it's easy sometimes to believe these things when police departments and the FBI are reporting this as actually happening. Right. Right. But then I think there's an interesting thing happening at the same time where like on one hand, the satanic panic largely blamed women. Like a a lot of the people who went on trial for abuses were women who were said to be sexually abusing children in these satanic rituals. And it also had a lot to do kind of in retrospect around the fact that women in the 80s and 90s were starting to work more and more and be outside of the house Mm -hmm. and daycares were becoming a lot more popular. And so a lot of people, including myself, sociologists who look back on this, do believe that a lot of this backlash toward these daycares had to do with the fact that they were the symbolic thing that said, okay, women are no longer mothers. Mm -hmm. Like women are coming out of this long-term position as only homemakers. um, And they're like, kind of like, fuck this more than, you know, like the 60s, 70s, you have more women working, but by the 80s, it was like a lot more common. And it was also like very condemned by fundamentalists. So you have this like weird blame that is coming like the witch trials in a way, right? I mean, men were certainly blamed Mm -hmm. uh, for some of these ritual abuses. And some men were blamed for some of the ritual abuses in the witch trials Mm -hmm. as well. But generally, when we look at these things, we look back and say, okay, this was like, women doing these things, which is so wild. But then in the 90s, (laughs) rattling this off, you also have third wave feminism, which I think is like, that's why I think you get so many like good witch movies, because even like The Craft is still like kind of an empowerment film. Mm -hmm. It's like also has sort of the hubris of of power Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and the problems with that. But, you know, I think there was a reclaiming of the witch in the 90s that came along with this new kind of feminism that was just kind of retelling these stories in a new Mm -hmm. way. So you have kind of all those influences 
throughout because they're writing this movie throughout the 90s right it comes out in 99 but throughout the 90s like we're still having the satanic panic happening and originally the movie was supposed to be more satanic they were supposed to find all these like satanic artifacts and pentagrams in the house and then Mm -hmm. they changed direction for whatever reason which I'm grateful that they did (laughs) this is not quite Blair Witch adjacent but I also feel like connecting things to daycares it also feels so tied in with like the stranger danger ideas of the 80s and 90s where it was like it was popular to make children afraid of strangers and present strangers as the ultimate danger when it's statistically more likely for danger and abuse to come from someone you know and all all this stuff that sort of like you don't think that there would be some level of presence to it in the Blair Witch Project but there Mm -hmm. is like the idea of a stranger luring you out into the woods to get you like it it does feel like there's a little bit of like late 20th century stranger danger stuff tied in there right as well i wanted to talk a little bit about heather as the visual storyteller of this mm-hmm. movie for the most part and i kind of wonder i mean i read a couple of essays about it the one that i want to share stuff from is from 2002 written by Denica McDonald. It's called Trespasses into Temptation, Gendered Imagination, and the Blair Witch Project. I don't agree with everything in in this essay, but I thought it was really interesting and sort of like gets into this in a very academic way. She's quoting the shit out of Laura Mulvey, and I like had flashbacks to my freshman year of college. But both kind of talks about how There is, first of all, the very samey presentation of the witch, like we've just talked about, but also in a way that feels like it possibly got lost when the movie came out because there's so much about this movie that's so interesting and different that it's like a little easier to forget that there are very stereotypical horror tropes present in this movie too, where like a woman gets too curious and has to receive her comeuppance for crossing this invisible boundary of where you're not supposed to go. So I wanted to share a little bit from her essay because I just thought it was interesting. Quote, For the first half of the film, Heather is the strongest character in the film. She's focused, organized, domineering. She refuses to be the object of both the larger film's gaze and the documentary's gaze. She has brought her own camera to record all of the events that take place. Moreover, the project was her idea. Uh, She takes possession of the only map for the excursion as well as the only compass. It is also Heather who has scouted out the project and who leads the excursion. Literally, she holds all the cards. However, out of all the characters, it is Heather who has the most difficulty accepting the reality of events around her. Thus, when she realizes she is losing control of her controlled and well-planned project, she frantically dismisses what she cannot explain. She repeatedly refuses to accept the seriousness of the situation she finds herself in and desperately tries to hold on to what is real by repeating phrases such as, "...things like this just do not happen in America." This is America. It is impossible to get lost. It is impossible to stay lost, which I think I wonder how improvised that line was, because that to me, I was like, wow, that's a fucking like doctoral thesis is worth of something to talk about. 
inside of that. And then they all scream, God bless America. Yeah. Yeah, Or the two guys just start screaming that, which I think is interesting Mm -hmm. too, right? Like she says that and then they just start screaming these like American anthems. Yeah. Just because, you know, they've they've obviously lost Mm -hmm. it a bit. But that's also interesting. But the idea of like, and I genuinely don't know how intentional this was in the filmmaking because of how it was made. But I think it's very rare to, in general, give anyone who's not a man a camera and give them narrative control. Mm -hmm. I love that they give that to Heather and they also take it away from her in certain moments where it's like technically most of this movie is presented by quote unquote the female gaze but Mm -hmm. it isn't because of not only the moments where you see the black and white of I think it Josh is shooting but also it's like inherent to the movie and I think like the website lore that two male directors were hired to edit it so fascinating I don't know even what to make of it because a lot of it feels like probably unintentional but to like have a woman at the front of a movie thinking that she is controlling you know controls the gaze of the movie but everything about the way it happens is taken out of her control and is like Mm. sort of used to undermine her credibility as a storyteller because you know that she (laughs) dies when the movie starts and you get to see all of these things that she doesn't want you to see Mm -hmm. i just think it's very interesting I can't think of another movie like it. I know. Definitely. And then the America stuff, it just, I don't know. I feel like that's almost like a little cherry on top of what you were talking about um, just now, Chelsea, <laughs> where you're, it's just like sort of the exceptionalist arrogance of Americans and of like this like specific late 20th century kind of moment where you're like, a bad thing wouldn't happen in America. And you're like, oh, baby, hang in there. <laughs> this is like... So similar to me to another thing that I am absolutely obsessed with, which is the story of the Donner Party. Mm. And they are another group of people who kind of marched into a situation believing that everything would be completely fine because sort of that maybe partially because of the halo of protection that we have as Americans or we think that we have because of this idea of like manifest destiny like this is our land this is our place like nothing bad can happen to us because like we are chosen to go westward and like it's sanctioned by our higher power and so we can act however we want because the Donner Party just they did things like stop and party for three days when they were like two weeks behind the weather they did these things that landed them in this situation believing hucksters who told them they'd be completely fine going in this other direction and getting lost and there's so there are a lot of parallels between these two stories not to say that you know it's the same intention behind going into the woods but there is something like particular to me I don't know about like three white Mm -hmm. young people going into the woods being like everything's gonna be totally fine Mm -hmm. you know we're gonna like go and and I would do this speaking as someone who would absolutely have done this and absolutely been the For heather sure. of the situation <laughs> i think we all would have been the heather at different points in not our a lives. judgment yeah. just a fact yeah so i think that there's still like an interesting thing about that like hubris because that's a big 
theme of this film is like you think you can go and chase like the paranormal and you can go after like these stories and you have like this idea of a halo of protection i used to travel in just such dangerous ways i used to hitchhike and do all these things and Mm. looking back i'm like yeah i absolutely had this like idea that i I was protected somehow. Mm -hmm. And there is something to that as well. Like that lens of some kind of privilege or some kind of invincibility that also has to do with youth, Mm -hmm. of course, like the folly of being in your early 20s. But yeah, I, I think that that's kind of another lens of like the overconfidence certain groups in America Mm -hmm. myself included totally young white middle class yeah people yeah right yeah and that's like so much of like what this movie shows feels just like experimental and possibly unintentional where I don't know that we've mentioned this yet but originally the directors envisioned it being three men who were leading this movie and it wasn't until Heather auditioned and gave an amazing audition that they were like oh actually we're going to put you at the center of this movie so so much of what is gendered about this movie is very possibly not a part of the original plan but that's not Mm. to say that that doesn't come into the performances and into the editing and into the marketing and into the reception it's just so bizarre and fascinating and the same thing of like it's the late 90s so I don't know but it's like I wonder how intentionally they were cast for race for appearance I mean it's all kind of unclear but it comes out just because of how the movie was shot and made and what it seems like the personal experiences of the actors were because so much of them had to go into the parts Mm -hmm. yeah the america stuff i was like oh fuck i totally forgot about that part of the movie yeah wow oh yeah not them cultural commentarying at the turn (laughs) of the millennium no (laughs) well one of the things heather says is when they're being like hunted in the woods and they don't really know who or what is hunting them, she says something like, well, they can't chase us forever because this is America where we've destroyed most of our natural resources. Mm -hmm, Basically saying like, we're going to run out of forest eventually. And like, we will come upon civilization. Not even totally misguided thought, but (laughs) come on. Yeah. That would be my logic. If I was lost in the woods, I'd be like, well, if I just keep walking in a direction, there will be a road. Eventually, yep. but you never see the Blair Witch controlling the space time continuum. Mm. No one's ready for that. <laughs> exactly. And I love that they just throw in this little pinch of hillbilly horror where we have, I believe, Josh saying, hmm. oh, my God, I think that there's like some redneck. I can't remember what he mm-hmm. says, but some rednecks yes. fucking with us out in the woods, which I also really am into looking at horror movie through the lens of class Mm -hmm. and like that they're out in the woods and this is kind of the only place where these like scary impoverished people live who are gonna get you if you go into the woods again like that like middle class college student Mm -hmm. like a deliverance type movie where it's like oh we're just gonna like canoe down this river because nothing bad will happen to us even though we have like no real plan and uh yeah i think that that's another just like interesting american moment in the movie uh, that we are kind of led to believe that that could be a possibility at least. And you can feel that in how the interviews go at the top of the movie as well where there's especially when they come into contact with Mary 
brown, which feels like a combination of they do not think she is of sound mind. I think they're also judging her because she's poor and she's old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then also uh, another time with the guys that are fishing, like you can just even hear, I don't know, like you can hear in Heather's voice that she's like, I don't take these people seriously because mm-hmm. they are poor and live rural. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're not listening to the harbingers and there's like a bunch of them. Yeah. <laughs> they're just, uh, you know, they're not Events. listening to them at all, which is a, you know, classic horror mm-hmm. trope and a classic college student mistake. <laughs> yeah. Josh even makes a reference to deliverance because like, that's the thing, like people's frame of reference for a lot of just what happens in life is the media they've consumed. And he's like, well, yeah. probably what's happening is that there are like people who live in the woods and they're the ones fucking with us, like in deliverance. You're like, who do you think made that, Josh? Middle class white people, you f- <laughs> <Yeah>. doofus. <laughs> Similarly, I forget which character, it's either Mike or Josh. They come upon that like makeshift cemetery and one of them says and it's just like a throwaway line of dialogue it's not a plot point or anything like that it's just like a they said something and he says oh looks like an indian burial ground right yeah which is like first of all we've also talked about on this show which is just like yeah yeah, an, an example of something scary or haunted being likened to indigenous history in some way where again as we've discussed, so many horror movies attribute something very scary to a native burial ground being disturbed or a native quote unquote curse of some kind, mm-hmm. something like that, that a character again, just like makes a throwaway comment about. I feel like there's also a similar moment, another throwaway line where they talk about like voodoo or like a I think they like see the stick figures and mm-hmm. make a reference to how they're like voodoo dolls. Mm-hmm. We've also talked about this, the way that Princess, Princess and the Frog, and the Frog episode. Yeah. yeah, the way that voodoo is widely misrepresented in media. Yeah, it's such a fascinating like time capsule of these very specific biases that still exist but it's just mm-hmm. like the way it's laid out in this movie is very natural because it basically is yeah yeah and these biases are coming out in like the acting because they don't have a script so i am assuming that josh did not have a script that said this is an indian burial ground right. you should say something about this mm-hmm. being an indian burial ground that's like just coming completely out of the influence that media has had on him mm-hmm. completely yeah which is just as interesting as a script it's it's basically the same thing it's still the writer slash actors bias right. being expressed which i feel like those three actors should have been credited writers on the movie yeah. since it's all their dialogue but they we're not credited as writing the movie. The only credited writers are the two directors, Daniel Merrick and Eduardo Sanchez, who wrote the outline for the movie. So yeah, they conceived the story and the basic plot points, but it was the actors. Right. But like the most iconic moment of this movie was technically written by the actor formerly known as Heather Donahue. <laughs> Those are her words. Mm-hmm. Yep. I just wanted to point out two quick things. One is that speaking of like their biases just kind of coming through in the dialogue, they're improvising. A few of them make some fatphobic and like body shaming comments. Mm. Also, 
one of the guys is filming Heather when she's trying to pee in the woods, which is very gross. It's illegal. And they film her dirty butt. Yeah. <laughs> which is very friend, evil friend behavior, I will say. <laughs> Not that it excuses it, but <laughs> zooming in on someone's dirty butt. Rude. I'll make the controversial observation that it could happen to any of us. <laughs> that it's classic comedy. <laughs> I would never do that. I would never film your dirty butt, Jamie. I just want you to know that. <laughs> Jamie would film I yours. might film your dirty wow. butt. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it depends on how dirty it is. The truth how, comes up. How feisty I was feeling <laughs> on that day. But you wouldn't put it in the movie. I wouldn't put it in the final cut. Thank you. But I would no. maybe send it to a group text. Oh, yeah. Sure, sure. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> Yeah, does anyone have anything else? Yeah, I think that's good. Yeah, I think that this movie does pass the Bechtel test. It does. Yeah, between Heather yeah. and Mary Brown. Yay. Mm-hmm. And if we knew the local that they're interviewing who's like holding the toddler in her arms, if we knew her name, which... It spiritually passes to me. Yeah. Her real name is Susie Gooch, which is also like... Okay. An incredible name. I love <laughs> Susie cool. Gooch. <laughs> I think it's also worth pointing out that there is no romance yeah, true. at all in this movie. So there's actually no conversation at all about a man romantically. It's mm-hmm. like the only girlfriend we have is Josh saying, like, my girlfriend's going to know I'm missing. Yeah. And that's kind of like the only line. We're like, we get it, Josh. Yeah, you have a we girlfriend. We get it. Does she live in Canada? <laughs> I read in the oral history that that was originally written into the outline was that Josh and Heather had a romantic so it's like you can't even hand it to the directors because they originally wrote in that like Josh and Heather had a romantic history but then based on how the early improvised scenes were going they're like eh, forget it cool because their relationship was becoming so friend antagonistic that they're like let's just cut that element and have you just Mm. react to each other but Hmm. yeah they weren't above it but it just was like a testament to the actors like I mean, it wasn't necessary either way. No, definitely not. their performances made it clear. Hmm. Interesting. So yes, to passing the Bechdel test, but on to the perfect metric, the Bechdel cast nipple scale, which is our scale where we rate the movie zero to five nipples based on examining it through an intersectional feminist lens. And I will give this... Ooh... Two and a half or three nipples, just because I really like the character of Heather in that I appreciate that she feels so authentically human in the way that women are not often allowed to be on screen. She's flawed and she has to deal with, again, what I interpret as implicit gender bias, Mm -hmm. whether or not that was an intentional piece of the filmmakers or not. It is how I experienced the movie as I was watching it. Those two men's treatment of her felt extremely familiar to me in that very kind of gendered way where totally agree. They aren't coming out and saying it explicitly, but their behavior and just the way they interact with her and the way they do not really trust her at any point, again, felt as though they were harboring these sexist biases. And I think that's interesting to watch. And again, whether it was intentional or not, 
it is there to me. <laughs> so, and it's something I never noticed until this watch of it either. But I also hadn't seen the movie since I was a teenager, probably. However, the lack of challenging of like the traditional witch narrative of, oh, of course, there was a witch who is evil because <laughs> witches be evil murderers for no reason. That not being challenged at all and that trope just being fully leaned into. And you don't get much backstory or lore of the Blair Witch in this movie, but in the two sequels. And I think I didn't watch that documentary that you were both referring to, but it seems like there's more lore that is canon to the property and to the Blair Witch that dives more into who the Blair Witch was and what she's all about. And again, it's just like playing into those tropes of like woman equals witch equals evil. So didn't Mm. care much for that. So with that in mind, I think I'll give the movie two and a half nipples and I'll give one to the actor formerly known as Heather Donahue and I'll give one to Mary Brown and then I'll give my half nipple to the woman who has the toddler yeah. <laughs> Who gives a great Susie little Gooch. improvised. Susie Gooch. Susie right. Gooch. And Baby Gooch. Famously now a corn fan. And whose yes. daughter is yeah. now a huge corn head. Yay, Baby Gooch. A corn Obsessed. cob, if you will. <laughs> totally corn <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's my rating. Yeah, I'm going to go three. I really enjoyed getting to talk about this movie. This movie does so many things. I don't even really care if it's intentional or not because it's like what we have and there are so few movies like it where it's like you're literally stress testing late 90s white middle class biases just inherently to how this project was made. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting. I really, I have a lot of love for the character Heather and the actor formerly known as Heather Donahue and all of the actors. I mean, just like absolutely wild that they survived this experience and again whether intentional or not the idea of like a a woman controlling the narrative and having the narrative taken away from her after her death and also in the last day of her life I think is really fascinating and if it's a mistake I don't care it's fucking cool and then there's all the like less challenging part of this that we've talked about of the presentation of witches and how Heather's treated in certain moments. I think honestly, the presentation of the witch herself is the thing I have the biggest issue with because mm-hmm. how Heather's treated does feel like a part of that stress test and it feels very relevant mm. to how her character works out. And I think it's frustrating and fascinating that the apology scene is what most people remember from this movie Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. it is a scene that is credited as being written by two men when it was not. Mm -hmm. It's a great piece of acting that was widely mocked for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. And it kind of, I think because it's famous, which is again, this isn't a fault of the movie really, but I mean like let's you sort of believe that Heather brought this on to herself and brought this on to her friends. Yeah. With the apology sort of being the thing that sticks with her. No no one it doesn't stick with anyone that Mike's the one that got rid of the map. It doesn't mm-hmm. like yeah. the other character's accountability isn't what sticks with people. And so I just think the movie fucking rips. Hell yeah. And 
I just really enjoy talking about it with you both. I'm going to give it three nips and I'm going to give them all to Ray Hance, aka the actor formerly known as Heather Donahue. Ooh. Looking forward to figuring out where I can buy her weed online. <laughs> I think she's out of the game now, sadly. Oh, damn. Dang. She's just being a Buddhist now, <laughs> Hell yeah. uh, which is rad. And I would be too if this <laughs> is a stressful like, history that really you're going to no need to balance with answers. <laughs> this has been your life. Yeah, Chelsea, how about you? Ugh, okay. I think that one of the most interesting themes and that makes me, again, like agree with you both really about the portrayal of the witch being the most egregious offense against like mm-hmm. women. And I didn't actually mention this before, but... There's a theme of blame, which we've talked about with Heather, but then we can also look at the blame that was placed if we're looking outside of the movie, which I think is okay because these things existed in kind of concert Mm -hmm. with each other. So it's like, yeah, it's the Blair Witch Project, but a lot of people were on the website. A lot of people were watching the fake documentary. Mm -hmm. And you learn about Ellie Kedwick, who is blamed by the town for the disappearances of children and then murdered and then You also have Rustin Parr, the child murderer of the 1940s, who is essentially considered to have been possessed by a woman, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like we have this actual horrific murderer that did exist. There's no lore. It's like Rustin Parr existed. He killed children. They were found. But it's still somehow a woman's fault. Like the map is somehow Mm -hmm. Heather's fault, right? So there's this like theme of blame that isn't really analyzed in any way. So let's see. I mean... I think I'm going to go up to three because mostly because of my bias and being so in love and obsessed with this movie. Heather, Mary Brown, Ellie Kedwick. Hell yeah. And you know what? Maybe I'll give another. Well, no, I can't give one for marketing, but I would just like to say the best marketing that has ever existed Mm -hmm. in any franchise period. And like completely (laughs) impossible to replicate. Like it's just never again. So fucking cool. Never again. Chelsea, thank you so much for bringing this to us. I I just like there's no one I would rather talk about this movie with. That's so nice. I'm so grateful that you asked me on. And yeah, it was a joy ride. For sure, of hubris. <laughs> what a wonderful camping trip. You know, in those Maryland woods, I'm from the Northwest, not as scary. Our woods are not as scary as those thin trees out there. <laughs> oh, it's so Ooh. freaky. I want to go. So I guess we're camping, right? I'm coming. I'm coming. See you there. <laughs> Here's a quick little story to end the episode with. I grew up in the middle of the woods in rural Western Pennsylvania. Whoa. There was a local legend that is like in local history books about this ghost who was haunting people and then he manifested as this eternal flame and so the but this flame that like popped out of the ground one day was actually just like a pocket of natural gas that ignited maybe from lightning or something but this flame this like or eternal flame ghost flame was right outside my house where like my d- dad built a little what? like 
Well, yeah. Obsessed. So there's a ghost story that existed on my property growing up. Okay. Your neighbor was the eternal flame. Yeah. It's like the legend of the burning well. I'll look into it. I'll see if I can find anything. I was like, you have to talk to Caitlin. Listen, this is a great moment for self-promo here. This Mm. is, yeah. American Hysteria has been doing a new project called the Urban Legends Hotline. And you go to our website, American Hysteria. And you can leave a message about an urban legend that you had growing up. And then we turn it into like a very detailed and very intensive episode. So I would love if you called in and talked about this ghost flame because I I love it. And you never know what you're going to find. We analyze it through every possible lens. Newspapers.com. We're there. (laughs) Hell yeah. I listened to the pig people episode. (laughs) That was a hotline episode, right? Yeah, it was. It was. Cannibal pig people murdering teenagers that's the kind of stuff you can find on our show (laughs) yeah tell us all about your show where people can find it etc yeah american hysteria you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts and um yeah we cover the fantastical thinking of americans moral panics urban legends conspiracy theories hoaxes crazes anything that kind of stirs a large amount of people Mm -hmm. we try to cover so a lot of the shows are written narrative me describing talking and we have clips you know it's very multimedia project and then we also have interview episodes with all kinds of cool guests talking about all kinds of cool topics so i hope you guys come and listen hell yes and thank you again for joining us come back anytime please yeah just say the word you can follow us on social media at Bechtelcast. you can subscribe to our matreon at patreon.com slash Bechtelcast, where you get two bonus episodes every single month, plus access to the back catalog of many, many bonus episodes, all for $5 a month. And you can get our merch over at tpublic.com slash the Bechtelcast. And with that, let's go into the freaky house and get gone. A dream. (laughs) I'm down. Bye. Bye. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l e e s a dot com slash iHeart.